The victim mentality always sees life as a struggle against oppressing forces. Victim versus oppressor. Black versus white. Democrat versus Republican. Liberal versus conservative. Tolerant versus racist. These counter forces are a means to divide people into smaller and more controllable tribe, making life simply about us versus them and asking everyone whose side they are on. Choose wisely. Racial division is among the strongest method to keep black people submissive and making them fearful of straying away from the controlled narrative. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, we will be discussing black victim to black victor with Adam Coleman, the author. Check him out at Speaking Wrong at the Right Time. That can be found at adambcoleman.com. At uh, his Substack, you will find it in the description below. Mr. Coleman, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What is the victim mindset? Uh, the victim mindset is um, leaning on being incapable of doing something uh, unless you are being advocated for, unless someone pulls you along, uh, waiting for someone else to do for you rather than doing for yourself. Um, and then always pointing blame at someone when something doesn't go in your particular direction. Um, so that is much of the victim mindset. Um, if I was to give like a very general description. How can we differentiate between genuine victims who need help and sympathy versus people who just are not as ambitious as they should be? I think with genuine victims, you have someone, one, you can see you can see a direct line as to how they were victimized. Um, and then there's usually some sort of resolution that is attached to it. Um, and I think people with a victim mentality um, find blame without resolution. Um, they don't come up with a resolution themselves. They don't attempt to move forward. Um, so like, let's say, for example, I'm a victim of assault, right? And then I say, well, I can't go to work because I was assaulted. And then I can't do this because I was assaulted. And so it always just becomes a reason why I can't do certain things. Um, and, and it seems, I would say, not genuine. Um, you know, now let's go even further. Um, I can't do this because my mother was assaulted. Well, I mean, like, what are, how does that stop you from doing the thing that you wanted to do because someone else was hurt, right? So that, that becomes another excuse to stay as a victim, even though you're not personally a victim of that particular situation. Um, and so, you know, much of me writing this book was in result of the death of George Floyd, a single man that the vast majority of the population had no idea who he was prior to his death. And suddenly people have a victim mindset about the world around them because of one situation about a man they didn't know that lived, you know, probably thousands of miles from most people away from them. So I think that is something that we need to examine why so many people were willing to lean on that one circumstance, that one unfortunate circumstance amongst many unfortunate circumstances that exist in the world. Why that one was so important to them to stop them from doing what they're doing or to stop them from seeing the world in a, in a particular light. Uh, to to change their perception. Um, and I think much of that is rooted in this um, favorability towards having a victim mindset, rewarding people for having a victim mindset. Um, 
So, you know, that's why I think also like when you hear about rape, uh, rape victims, actually, I was just about to say it, they call them survivors, right? It's a different term to establish a different mindset, right? You did go through this, but now you survived that event and now you're moving on with the rest of your life. Rather than saying a victim, it, it induces like a different way of seeing things. Um, and I think by calling it something more positive, which is why I say victor, right? Yes. Okay. Let's say you, you were victimized, but now it's time for us to do that, that great thing, move forward in life in spite of these negative things that happen. What is the victor mindset? The victor mindset is much of that. Um, doing things in spite of your negative circumstance. Um, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about me growing up without my father and things like that. And, and me having a, a, a victim mindset. And there are areas in my life where I was stagnant in growth. But once I started becoming 100% accountable for my actions and started taking on a victor mindset, which is accountability, which is doing things in spite of challenges, which is when things fail, you say, okay, what could I have done better? So next time I can do better, right? Which is linked to accountability. When you start having that mindset, and, and just personally speaking, when I started having that mindset, my life started to grow exponentially. Um, and if I didn't do those particular things, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Um, it would always be some sort of reason, some sort of excuse, some sort of fear to keep me from, from excelling in life because um, I would be too worried. Uh, you know, actually, I talk a little bit uh, on my Substack about depression and anxiety, much of that is rooted in a victim mindset, right? Because you find fault within yourself, you find you find fault everywhere. Uh, and you're you're never able to overcome that obstacle. It always becomes a reason why you can't do something. So I can't go here because I have social anxiety. I can't do this because I have this anxiety. I, I can't be around these types of people because I have depression, right? So it always becomes some sort of excuse as to why you can't do something. Um, so whereas if you have a victor mindset, you say, okay, I'm uncomfortable with this situation, but I need to do it anyways, and I'm able to do it so I can get better at it. It's a completely different outlook. Can you give me some examples of how you first started embracing the victor mindset and what those hurdles were like and how you overcame them? Uh, actually, this might sound a little bit weird, but like uh, I did have, I didn't realize it, but I did have social anxiety. Um, I, I guess I didn't realize it because it was for so many years, you just kind of, you, I think what happens for a lot of people, you think your uh, certain behaviors are just your personality rather than you're just carrying on uh, a trait that you haven't healed from or you haven't fixed within yourself. Um, I had accidentally, I say accidentally, cause I was supposed to travel with someone uh, and they weren't able to go, but I, I booked a trip to bounce around Europe, four countries uh, by myself. And then, uh, you know, I, I went and uh, I went to Germany, uh, Netherlands, England, and France. So from a, from a social anxiety standpoint, quite literally everything that you're doing is new. And 
I was nervous at first and then I accomplished something like something as simple as I said I was going to go to this party tonight. I found a taxi in Germany. I went to the party. I met new people. I had a great time. And then by the time the two weeks were over, I came home. I felt different. Uh, I felt more relaxed. And um, it wasn't a like I just went on vacation kind of relaxed. It was uh, that anxiety, that social anxiety, that always questioning myself, if I go here, if I do this, was completely gone. And I compare it to like throwing someone in the deep end to force them to learn how to swim. And I didn't realize I needed to learn how to swim. Um, and it, it was from that moment that I started using like traveling as a way to experience things that are, are different and uncomfortable and just going through with it. And I think that has, that has uh, brought me success into this realm where like going on television, uh, you know, I went into Fox News studios and they wanted me to like stand up next to the anchor in person with these cameras on live TV. I've never done anything like that. And, and the social anxiety part would have stopped me. And of course you get like a little bit nervous, but you go through it. And I think that that is something, if I didn't go through all those things before, I wouldn't be able to have the success I am having today. So it's about finding small, uh, controllable hurdles uh, yeah. just to really uh, get, get yourself in because it's not like you started at the Fox News place. You started at this party in Germany. So that's what people can actually do today in their real lives is find small hurdles in doing safe things that make them uncomfortable uh, yeah. that aren't, you know, that's not skydiving without a parachute or anything. <laughs> um, exactly. You said taking responsibility and it has to have something to do with like a level of ambition and humility i would think just because um you had mentioned i uh it was either you or walter williams who talks about how uh youth unemployment today is relatively high uh between blacks mm -hmm. and whites but in 1948 when there was far more discrimination um there was much lower youth unemployment for both blacks and whites so there really is something within uh both cultures uh or mm -hmm. uh, i didn't look at asian and hispanic unemployment but uh there is uh somewhat of a lack of ambition or a much more reliance on succeeding through the schooling system as opposed to the employment realm when it comes to how do people start being ambitious what are actual steps they can take because sometimes it just feels like you're lost it's like yeah i want to succeed i don't even know where to start do i go to a website do i just start mm. knocking on doors and asking for jobs where do people actually begin when embracing responsibility and wanting to become ambitious so i think ambition is one of those things either you have or you don't have um now, if it's something that you want to do, like you are ambitious, but you don't know how to perform it, you don't know like which direction to, to head down, then that's something completely different in my opinion. Um, so for example, you know, I, I recently had a friend who wants to get into the IT field and my background is in IT. So they ask me questions because I'm in the field so they can understand like how, how, to, how do I actually go about this? How do, where do I actually go? For me, um, being a, uh, I would say like a new writer uh, and writing for different publications, my job is to ask people questions. Like I'm friends with my editors now. And so I ask from an editor's standpoint, like what's the thing that bothers you when you get from writers? What is the thing that you're looking for? You know, how can, how can I be better as a writer 
But I'm asking these questions because I want to understand the realm that I'm getting into, um, even though I'm, I'm, I'm theoretically already in it. But how can I be better at the, at the role that I'm in? Um, and I think if, if there was more access, like actually, one thing I'll say is uh, from having friends in Europe, one of the things that they seem to have a little bit more of out there is uh, programs where um, like apprenticeship programs. Um, like we, we kind of have apprenticeships here, but it's very, very few and far between. But they have apprenticeship, apprenticeship programs in all different types of fields. So if someone's like, I'm thinking about getting into nursing, boom, they can just jump into an apprenticeship program at some place and they can just be there and see what it's like. And they're like, you know what? I don't actually want to do this. And so they don't waste four years in college to come out and do something that they didn't actually want to do. Um, so I think because we have the information, uh, we're in the information age, we have technology, we have forums, we have uh, LinkedIn, we have all these different platforms where even if you, you don't want to talk directly to people, people offer information all over the place. Um, and my belief is that if you want to learn how to become successful in life, talk to successful people. And I kid you not, uh, my, my old job, my old job, my CEO is a millionaire and he wasn't like, uh, you know, born as a millionaire. He worked himself up and he's quite literally the guy who can do everything at the company, right? So he knows the ins and outs and he earned his, his fortune to do the things that he's doing today. And he'll close the door and sit down and tell you everything. There are so many successful people who are like that. They're like, listen, here's what you got to do. You know, here's what worked for me. Here's how you, how you approach this here, talk to this person. And I think, I think we assume that successful people in different industries don't want to offer information where I found the opposite. I find that most people are, are willing to actually have a discussion with you and they're relieved. Like, thank you for asking my opinion on this thing because no one, <laughs> no one asked me anything. So I've tried to actually do the same thing for myself. I found some success and I'm, I'm, I offer to help other people. Uh, that's what we're trying to do with WrongSpeak. We're trying to help offer a platform to uplift people and to give them an opportunity because they're quite literally the person who has a Substack with five followers and they don't know how to go about this. And then here they have a writer who writes for the Post and other publications. How do you do this? How can I get connected with these people? You know, so I, I think bridging, uh, finding a way to bridge to success for other people, I think is extremely important once you become successful. And I think a lot of people who do find even just a small amount of success are willing to offer advice along the way. You just have to be willing to ask. The book is Black Victim to Black Victor. My guest is Adam Coleman. One of the things that I realized really quick is the amount of humility that you have to have when you start uh, getting into things. I yeah. took an unpaid internship and you would have thought that I was like signing a one year, a one billion year Scientology contract with the way that my <laughs> friends and family were like, oh, you're not getting paid. You're working without getting paid. I said, how much do you think four years of college is going to pay me? Pays me about negative $10,000 a semester. That's what mm. it is. I actually have to pay to go work and then go home and do the homework. But for some reason, when I was in the entrepreneurial sector working, it was literally a 12-day internship, three days a week for four days a week or three days a week for four weeks. 
and yeah. everyone like couldn't believe that I was allowing myself to get exploited. I go, I learned more in the first three days about how to work with customers and how to negotiate and how to learn on the job skills in those, you know, first two or three days than I did from like months of school. So just getting, uh, j just getting in there really is, uh, is so different than uh, what uh, schooling has to offer. A any uh, major lessons you want to share with the audience about um, what you learned uh, writing a book, publishing a book and trying to market it? Cause I've seen you at uh, TP USA. I met uh, mm -hmm. your wife at freedom fest. What's some advice you have? Okay. So writing a book, um, have patience. Um, <laughs> that's the that's the biggest thing. Um, have patience um, and understand you're always going to be editing. Um, unless you you start like, unless you write, you finish, you do your first book, um, then after that it becomes easier and easier. Like if you ask yourself like, how's Ben Shapiro writing like two books a year? Like, <laughs> you know, it's because he, you know, you got it down and, and you can do it faster. You, you have to lay out in your head and you can just do it. Um, but when, when you're first trying to attempt to do it, um, I, I tell people this free advice. If you can come up with at least 10 chapter titles, you might have a book. So I quite literally open up a folder and create word documents with the title of the chapter. And that's just my starting point. So it's kind of like the foundation of the house. If I have a foundation, then I can build upon it. If I don't, if it's like, oh, I got this idea and I can only come up with like two or three chapter ideas to kind of break it down, then I don't. Um, but then from that 10, you know, I would say at least 10 from that 10, then you can start. It doesn't mean you'll always have 10. It could eventually might turn into 15. Um, I've had it in this book where I had a whole bunch of chapters and I cut a bunch out um, because it, it it just seemed redundant or it wasn't necessary or I already touched upon it in this chapter. So I just took paragraphs from one chapter into another. But that's that's a great starting point for people, because I think a lot of people think approaching a book means starting from page one of chapter one. And that's not how it works. Um, in the beginning, you're likely not going to know how the book starts, especially if it's your first time. Um, so you likely don't know how the book starts. I would say write to what you're feeling at that moment. So if you if you have 10 chapters and you're like, but there's this one chapter I'm really feeling right now, then write towards that chapter, right? And then work your way as time goes on. Um, another thing is uh, find a, a consistent time and place and invest an hour to two hours writing. And I would say if you can do that four days a week, then you before you know it, You'll be you'll be really streaming through the book, uh, quite literally. With this book, that's all I did. I, I invested about an hour to hour and a half. I actually wrote like ninety percent of the book while I was at work, uh, but it was I started work at six in the morning. Generally, there was nothing going on until seven thirty, eight o'clock. So I boom sat down, started writing, and then started working. Um, and I was able to finish the book in nine months, um, and that includes the editing part. And I had to go back and revise certain things because my writing style was getting better. It sounded a little bit different. I knew exactly what I wanted to sound like. And this was my first time writing. Um, so I think nine months is incredibly good uh, for the first attempt. And I think that uh, with practice and, and if you're someone who writes often, it might be faster, it might be easier. So yeah, I would say start off with chapter titles 
be consistent on time and place so that you're comfortable. Write to the chapter that speaks to you at that moment. If you don't have anything that's really speaking to you, then just go back and read and edit. Um, and then maybe tomorrow you have something you're like, oh, I, I really want to do this. Um, I used to actually the the great part about writing this book was during it was 2020 and the riots and something new was happening that was like racially motivated. And so I, on my drive to work, I would listen to it on like some podcast or like some new stream. And I would be like, oh, and then I just get to the office and then I was able to really, really address it. So that was that was like extra motivation for me. Uh, to write the book. But um, yeah, I mean, those are like simple, very simple concepts that I would tell people if if this is your first time writing a book, that's how you should approach it. On to uh, people taking uh, more responsibility for their actions. You had a uh, interesting uh, comment in the book where you had mentioned that uh, people will be very unhappy with um, a number of partners they had. Oh, there's no good women out there. Oh, there's no good men out there. And you mm -hmm. have revived the Kevin Samuels mindset of <laughs> what is uh, what makes you such a bad judge of character? What is it that you're doing where you're the one who picks this person and best time and money and then keeps getting let down? Not that uh, at any time someone screws you over, they're not responsible, but uh, you do have some role to play in this because you are a person with the ability to make decisions. What are some of the things people should look for when finding a potential spouse? What are some red flags they should avoid? Um, so, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a perspective of, as a guy uh, dating women uh, and now now being married uh, for two years now. Um, find someone who has the humility to say that they're wrong. And be willing to say when you're wrong. It doesn't work. If you say you're wrong and that person is completely incapable of it, it just it just does not work. Um, I've been in that situation and it is quite painful because you don't feel like you can move forward. And then what ends up happening is you end up apologizing for their stuff. And the whole point is that you apologize so everybody can move forward and not lean on it. But it leaves you in this point where you're just like, I just want to keep the peace. And so I'll, I'll take on your nonsense and I'll apologize for you. But that's not healthy and that's not good. And it doesn't resolve anything. Um, people ask me, like, how did you know you wanted to marry your wife? And I told her, I told them that it's because she apologized for stuff that she did wrong um, and how we got into an argument. So in the worst of times, that's how you know if you can survive with someone, if you can live with someone. Um, not in the best of times. Everybody has the best of times. In the very beginning, it's roses and everything's good. You have wild sex, all that stuff. But in the, in the moments that are tough, because there's going to be tough moments in, in your life, um, how does that person respond? And there were times with previous partners and in the tough times, they responded horribly. And I overlooked it because of the good times. I overlooked that they didn't apologize. I overlooked that they overreacted to, <laughs> to certain things. Um, whereas with my wife, if we have a disagreement, she says what she wants to say, I stay quiet. And then I say what I want to say, and she stays quiet. And then we both apologize for our part of the issue. And then we like move forward. And then we don't talk about it because there's nothing else to talk about. 
um, especially with me, I'm very low key. I'm very low drama. Like I don't want anything bubbling on the surface or anything like that uh, or bubbling below the surface. So like, I just want to address it. I want to address the elephant in the room and talk about it so I can like be at ease and just move forward. I, I just want peace. I think most guys are like that. We just want peace. <laughs> um, so I would say that um, I would focus on that because listen, everybody, women with personality disorders can show themselves to be absolutely wonderful life of the party. Everything is great. But in those moments that things aren't going the way that they want, that aren't good, that's when you really see the, the gap between the high and the low. The gap between the high and the low should be relatively close to each other. Um, whereas if it's such a wild swing, like this person is absolutely wonderful. And then when things don't go well, they want to murder you. Like, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good at all. So um, I would say that's, that's a really big component. Um, I would say, especially for women, have your, have your, either your father, brother, family member, have them meet the person that you're dating. Um, because guys can sniff out BS from other men. Um, and when you're like, you know, oh, this person's wonderful and amazing. And then the guy meets them and just asks them a few basic questions. And it's like, oh, yeah, this guy's a con artist. Oh, yeah, this guy's a player. He's full of it. Uh, then you listen to what they have to say and you take that into account before you start really getting invested in that person. Um, I just don't think that there's enough of that happening between both sex. Uh, both sexes having their family meet this person and, and sometimes we encourage people to move forward and despite like like i've heard people say like my family hates him and i'm like isn't that kind of a red flag <laughs> like your family has known you your entire life you know if if they're a good family they care about your well-being and then they meet this person and you're like they don't like my choice so i'm going to reject the people i've known my entire life for this stranger uh, that seems like a, a bad idea. So we need to, I, I would say, take some input from people that care about you, that genuinely care about you, and and see what they think. And so that's why, like, I brought her around my family. They all love her. I bring her around my friends. They all love her. So I'm like, I feel comfortable with my decision because everybody that meets her loves her. So, yeah. Uh, I want to look at the cultural divide that is constantly pushed and uh, get your take on a few things. Here we have uh, Penguin.co, the uh, publishers, where uh, they publish an excerpt from Ibram X. Kendi, where he discusses his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he begins with a definition, racist, one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea, whereas an anti-racist is one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. What uh, do you think of when you hear this definition? Is it accurate? What are the shortcomings? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it basically brings into line, um, it's almost like, it's very religious sounding because it's one thing, to say like a racist is a person who does racist things. Okay, that makes sense. But they're saying inaction too. So like just by you doing nothing means that you are racist. And, and I'm like, that's a that's a weird concept. Like we wouldn't label someone simply by the inaction of something that they're doing. 
uh, or not, they're not doing. Like, um, so to me, I think this is much of like religious dogma. That's what it sounds like to me. Um, either you're with us or you're against us. Um, so are you an anti-racist? Because you have to do something to become an anti-racist. You can't sit on the sidelines and say, I'm not doing racist things. No, 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 that's not good enough. You, by doing nothing, you support racist policies, right? You have to become an anti-racist. You have to start doing things. And that's not the standard that racism was or has been. Um, and this is, this is a, a way to bring people into the fold, um, either by labeling them something simply for not doing something. Um, so that's why I think this is, this is like leftist wordplay. Uh, <laughs> to try to try to convince people or pressure people into becoming something, uh, becoming more racially aware, becoming um, anti-racist to come onto their side. But I think it's um, I think it's funny to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> it's funny when you hear it, but it's sad when you see an audience applause and you're like, wait, they did, they just fell for that whole thing? Yeah. Quite literally. But you know what? I will say this. An audience that would sit there and applause, I think was like primed and ready for it. Um, try and bring that to middle America. Try to bring that to like regular people who aren't sitting in some in academia who thinks that any person standing at a podium is spitting facts and truth and is telling you the new thing that you, you all have been unaware of. And this is the new outlook and uh, the new outlook in life. Um, tell that to like regular people who work nine to five, <laughs> who deal with people of all different skin colors and all different backgrounds. And they're like, so wait a second. So by me doing nothing means that I am something that's bullshit. <laughs> well, it's you know? so wild because, uh, you can see you, um, had mentioned, uh, the George Floyd, uh, death and it never occurred mm -hmm. to me when a few years earlier I saw, uh, the death of Tony Timpa, which was caught on police body camera. Police were uh, had their knee on uh, his back for about 14 minutes. He's screaming, uh, please help me. You're going to kill me. They end up killing him. And it mm -hmm. never occurred to me to say anyone who isn't speaking out of this is part of the problem because there's so many problems in the world. You don't speak out about Haitian poverty. You don't care about Haitian <laughs> poverty. You're part of the Haitian problem. Mike, it, yeah. everything is so exhausting and just impossible do you have a general theory as to why uh the media is so selective in what they choose to report on what is the overall agenda or is it just they just want the clicks the george floyd story got him more clicks the tony temple one or the killing of ashley babbitt on january 6th unarmed woman that wouldn't have gotten them the clicks what's your overall idea on that i think clicks is definitely part of it i think that our media has been ideologically captured. Um, you know, my friend Batia, um, she wrote the book Bad News, and she talks about how the field of journalism used to be a working class profession and all of a sudden started to become an area for the upper class, an area for the elite. It's why the New York Times only takes in Harvard, Princeton, you know, Ivy League students or, or if not Ivy League, top, top university journalism students. Well, what do you find at these places? Well, the <laughs> progressive ideology. They all get, you know, fed even just a, some sort of progressive ideology while they're there, whether it's in class or in the general surrounding. That's the that's the taboo thing. To, uh, not taboo. That's the um, 
uh, the the invoke thing to do, um, and the invoke thing to to hear. So that's why when George Floyd happened, and it, and this has been happening for a, a period of time, but when George Floyd happened, it just took a whole another step, because before it was just like show the black person bleeding and sh- it, 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 with the cop, right? That was because that was sensational. But now it's like sensational plus an ideological bent, right? So now you can show uh, the cop with the the knee on the back of George Floyd, and then you can bring on uh, this leftist professor to on, onto MSNBC to give you his leftist viewpoint as to why the systemic racism has been permeating for decades. Like, it's it's both now. It's sensational and it's ideological. Um, and I think very much so of the media, it is it is um, ruled by the upper class um, to dictate what the rest of the people should do and how they should see the world. And it's what motivated me to even write the book in the first place, because it's not the world that I've I've lived in. I've lived in various states. I've lived in five states in my life. I've lived in various areas, urban, rural and suburban. I've been around white people my entire life. I've been around all different types of demographics of people, even the building that I live in today. Uh, Indian, Muslim, white, all, like all different types of people. You know what we do? We all get along. We're all cordial to, the, to each other. Like that's what most people are like. Are there races that exist in our society? Yes, because hatred exists and you'll never get rid of hatred. There are people who hate people who have different color hair, like for arbitrary reasons, people who don't like Catholics just because. Like who knows? But there are, those people are illogical and they're not the majority in our society. They're not even close to being the majority in our society. And what we hear from these people, and I I actually think much of what we hear from the upper class media elite is projection um, because they're dealing with snobby elitists. (laughs) Like, especially if you're a black upper class and you're dealing with snobby elitists who might find some sort of reason to not like you. And then they say, Maybe they say some borderline racist stuff to you, like legitimately. And then they go around saying, like, I'm dealing with all these, you know, children of millionaires who don't like black people. This is the representation of white people in America. I'm like, no, it's not. You're dealing with a particular demographic of prep school kids who were raised by snobby parents. <laughs> like, like that's something very particular. So that's that's my like working theory as to why they go so hard. But so I think there is a huge class element. It's not to say that everybody who is wealthy uh, is like this. But what I'm saying is there is a bent as far as the people who are ideological, the people who are of the upper class, because they are following the anti-racism mantra, they're doing something, right? They're writing the article. They're doing their part to be a good anti-racist. And being a good anti-racist means projecting onto the rest of the population to show how they're the anti-racist that everybody else is wrong by inaction. Everybody else is uh, perpetuating white supremacy by inaction. So that's why it's even more offensive because they're taught to do something. Um, And meanwhile, we're just trying to go to work, have enough money to buy groceries and put gas in our car. And then we're being told that we're bad people simply because we're just trying to live life the best we can and we're just generally respectful to other people, even if they look different than us, um, by a very particular class of people. And that's the part that offends me. And that's why a lot of my articles talk about the class element, um, because not enough people do. 
the the black upper class progressives, the Ibram X Kendis, are just as bad as the white upper class progressives who are elitists as well. They all have the same viewpoint. They all act the same, and they're just as condescending and elitist as and any other color, right? So this is a mindset thing, much as of what I was talking about, Black Victor and Black Victor. It's really a mindset thing. Um, and, and we have snooty, <laughs> condescending, unlikable, upper-class, elitist Black people and white people in our society, and they all want to tell us what to do. Shots at Michael Eric Dyson and Robin <laughs> D'Angelo. What yes. a great answer. Um, so how can we verify this theory? America is a white supremacist society. How can we falsify and see whether or not such a thing is true? Because I would have certainly agreed it took a lot of courage to be an anti-racist in 1823, 1923, in 2023. I uh, think it, it takes no courage at all, and it's so cheap, and that's why so many people uh, easily embrace it and say it with mm -hmm. so much pride, because it just uh, there's basically no risk. No one's going to lose uh, their job because you're wearing a, uh, a candy T-shirt or something. How could we verify whether or not a person or group is racist? Um, well, for one, I think people need to go outside. I think the reason why this was able to kind of take off with George Floyd was the perfect storm of COVID and uh, COVID restrictions. So there was no entertainment. There was no sports. There was no Baylor, any media. The movies stopped happening. Like there was nothing but television. And television was basically reruns of something or politics. Even sports news channels turned into politics uh, as, a, as a avid sports fan. Um, so everything became politics and it was just the perfect storm of George Floyd happening and then everybody talking about these things and everybody getting propped up because of it. Um, but the reality is that we weren't encouraged to go outside, <laughs> you know, we were encouraged to sit here and hyper-focus on a screen that's telling us we're bad people and that's why George Floyd died. And it's our fault too, as a society and this and this and that. And then I'm just like, Go outside. Go outside and meet people. That's why I read stuff on Twitter. I'm like, you guys are absolutely idiotic. Do you do you have a job? Do you have a job where you work with different people? Do people act like this at your job? Likely not. Like, do, do the people are your family members like this? Likely not. Like, go outside and actually talk to people and see what people are like. Are there assholes in the world? Yes. Right. <laughs> assholes exist in all colors. I've met them. Right. So. But for the majority of people, they're fine. Like, they don't care enough about you to hate you. Like, just go outside and meet people and talk to people. And generally, they're cordial. You know, you know what people talk to me as a stranger most often? People who don't look like me. They're, like, standing in line waiting. Like, man, this line's taking a little while. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's like, man, it is beautiful out today. These people don't even look like me. They don't even know who I am. And they're talking to me. Like, that's the type of environment that people uh, are living in, especially when you're in the South. Like, people, people have full-blown conversations with you. Um, in the Northeast, not so much. You might get, that's the most you'll get is, you know, talking about the weather or complaining about service. But um, I, I just think that that has been a much bigger problem is that everything has been so polarized because people are unwilling to meet people in real life. And so they go on places like Twitter, they go and, and read from professors who live in an academic bubble and all they do is confirm each other's biases. Like 
I just think that more people need to have conversations with people in real life. Get off. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're on a podcast of so like, get off <laughs> YouTube and get off this. But I'm just saying like, occasionally, um, you want to get off these things and actually meet people. And I think that's how you kind of, at least for me, that's how you not go into that level of the world is over black pill. We're all doomed. It's because you're able to balance that with, I went outside and my life is pretty normal and things are generally fine. So, which is true, they're both true. You kind of have to balance it that, essentially the world is complex. There are always gonna be bad things, but there are tons of good things and there are tons of good people and there are some bad people as well, right? So it's kind of, you have to go day by day and just live your life, but people have to actually live their life and not live vicariously through a narrative. So when it comes to being primed uh, to uh, hear something, uh, hear about a story, you know, any story that really motivates you, you first have to be primed for in order for it to uh, really have an effect. Let's do a bit of a role play. I will mm -hmm. be a fake social justice warrior coming from a different <laughs> angle, and you give me your response um, here is an uh, article titled The Gender Death Gap at the Libertarian Institute. According mm -hmm. to Washington Post, an overwhelming majority of people shot and killed by police are male, over 95%, while the overall male population is roughly 50%. More than half the victims are between 20 and 40 years old. The huge difference in workplace fatalities between men and women with 4,761 men dying on the job compared to 386 women in 2017. The fatality rate for men was about 10 times that of women, 5.7 per 100,000 versus 0.6 per 100,000. So this proves uh, institutional systemic sexism against men. This is <laughs> a result of men having been conscripted into the military. This is a uh, historical result after all those injustices. Men are more likely to be homeless. Uh, men are uh, more likely to pay more for car insurance, more likely to pay more for um, life insurance. And men are frequently genitally mutilated at birth uh, with uh, circumcision. So we live in a female supremacist society. What, if anything, is wrong with that mindset that I uh, just put forth? Uh, it ignores... Um... It ignores a biological reality that um, men are more men tend to be more violent, and and also like the things that you're reading, these are like on the extremes. So like if you bring up prison stats, right? Obviously, not every man has been to prison, right? But on the extremes, the men that would end up in prison are more willing to take risks, and they're likely more violent. It's it's somewhere in the, that combination, depending on why they're ending up in prison. But they're on the extremes, and the extremes are much greater for men. Doesn't mean that women aren't violent. Obviously, there are violent women. But the the level of extremes for women, as far as being violent, are much, much lower. Um, so I think men tend to men on the extremes are more violent than women, hence why they have more interactions with the police. They're also um, less risk adverse, whereas women are more risk averse. So you have these biological realities, part of it's testosterone, you know, um, 
and in, in other biological reasons, I'm not a biologist or anything like that. So there are, but there are basic biological reasons why men and women are different. Men and women approach things differently. Like I said, men take more risks. Um, they're willing to do riskier jobs. Some of those riskier jobs require more strength, which is why it puts us in a position of being killed. Um, men are biologically stronger than women. So you have all these different things that are, are biologically uh, connected. Now, uh, I think there was one you were talking about. Um, I think there was one that could be seen as like social. What was it? It wasn't the circumcision part. It was uh, military just, conscription. I you would still, say it, all men 18 to 26 sign up for the selective service system. You might have to be sent to Ukraine, Taiwan, Baghdad, wherever uh, Joe Biden says. So that is interesting because I think that is a result of, well, actually, I think it's a result of a couple of things. Um, I think that's a result of purpose because I've talked to people and I've, I've talked to people in the military and, and they'll tell you stories like so many people would just like, I don't know what else I would do in my life if I just didn't go to, to the military. And that gave me structure and that taught me how to do something. And I was able to figure my life out from there. So I think that's that's a purpose oriented thing. I know people like to bring up World War Two and, you know, Normandy and all these different things. Um, and I think that could be seen as much of a purpose thing. I think men are, are highly purpose driven. The men who kill themselves, you, you, uh, you didn't bring up suicides, but, um, <laughs> you know, men, men who who I think men and women tend to commit suicide for different reasons. Men commit more commit suicide more than women. Um, but I think a lot of times men commit suicide more so because of uh, a lack of purpose in, in a particular circumstance. So like one of the things we don't really talk about is men who commit suicide because they lost custody of their kids, right? Um, uh, men commit suicide because of an extreme loss. Like let's say you had a profession and everything was great and then um, you lost your job in 2008 and then your wife is like, well, you have no money and I'm out and I'm divorcing you and I'm taking the house. Like he, you just had an extreme loss um, of, of things that you earned and you tried to build. And that might lead someone into a point of saying, what is the point? I have no more purpose. Everything that I worked hard for is now taken away from me. It's gone. Then it's, that's the lack of purpose. And that's where they might do that. I think that's where you see the, um, epidemic of drugs and things of that nature. The homelessness part, I think is, I would say tend to be linked with drugs. Um, that's also, a feeling of lack of purpose. What's the point of even being here? Let me just drown away. Let me mask how I'm feeling. Um, and I, I think some of it might be due to abuse as well. You know, a lot of people um, mask their, their childhood trauma um, with that. You could have also brought up um, uh, men being raped and, and sexually abused as uh, when they were children are less reported. You know, so there's there's a whole bunch of different ways you could have gone there in the in the in the male social justice way. <laughs> and the, the reason that I bring this up is because if I just looked around at the result and I saw men are 95 percent of those killed by police. Well, then mm -hmm. I'm just a male victim. I'm part of the victim group. Men are just 
victims for no reason were disproportionately affected, which is why I appreciated you open the book on page two with saying FBI statistics from 2019 show that the 6% black male demographic account for about 51% of the murder arrests, 52% of robbery arrests, and 26% of rape arrests. So when we look at these disparities between mm -hmm. groups, the immediate response you get, historical racism and poverty as a result of that racism leading to criminality. What is your response to that? I would say, uh, and I think I put this in the book, if, all right, so actually I'm going to answer that question and, and add in another piece because race crime statistics are considered controversial and I understand why. And that's why I wanted to do it in the right way um, because racists, will try to say this is something that's immutable, right? It is, this is a black thing and they're just violent. And that's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, I believe in the book, I, I talked about um, how in the 19, I think it was the 1940s, the, I could be wrong. I thought, of, I remember looking it up, but in the 1940s, the, the percentage of uh, inmates compared from a racial demographic standpoint was proportionate to the population, right? So it wasn't 50% of, uh, I, I think today it's somewhere in like in the 40% range of inmates are, are black. It was about 13%. It was, some, it was much lower. It was proportionate to the population. Now this is a country with <laughs> systemic racism, like you could actually make that argument. You know, yeah, Jim Crow laws, you had all these different things. You had, you had a, a negative social outlook for many people as far as black Americans go. So you actually had that environment where these things could exist, and yet imprisonment wasn't at the level that it is today. And so the only thing that I can come to a, some sort of conclusion is that it was a change culturally, but it was a change culturally as far as family goes. And so when I look at the men on the extremes who are ending up in prison, who are becoming more violent, um, as a father, one of the things you learn is how to teach your, your son how to control his emotions. And what I, I've, because I'm just like, I watch people and I see how violent people act. They have no control over their emotions, right? It's not, uh, this person punched me and so then I become violent. That's a response. And that seems like an adequate response. Th these are people where a small, slight action results in a very overt, violent reaction. Um, it is a disregard for other people. It, it's these particular things, these are concepts, and these are things that you're supposed to train your son to do. Um, some require more training than others, but this is something that I trained my son how to deal with. I taught him how to be in control of his emotions, to respond to things, to understand he needs to control how he responds to certain things. And that certain responses are bad responses. You, that, that's what, when they're small and they hit some kid, it doesn't make a whole lot of damage. But that's the moment you teach them, don't do that. And here's why you do that. And you receive punishment for that. But imagine if a kid grows up in a broken home and they grew up in foster care. No one cares about them, right? And then they get hurt. They get, um, they're abused. And now they really don't know how to control their emotions. And, and so I think much of jail is just seeing an environment filled with, with adults who had experienced some sort of childhood trauma, whether it be neglect, physical abuse, or sexual abuse, and it manifests into them becoming the rejects of society. 
and they don't know how to fit in because no one ever taught them how to fit in. Um, and I think it's an, a very unfortunate thing, but that's what happens when you remove fathers from the home. That's what happens when you remove uh, the importance of fathers and, and replace being a father means economic earner and that's it. Okay, the women earn their own money. Fathers are no longer needed. They're just optional. That is a, a highly, highly detrimental viewpoint for anybody to have, not just black Americans. And the one thing I will say in the book, I try to bring it back to childhood trauma is an American issue that we can all kind of unite over. It sounds weird that we can unite over childhood trauma, but what I'm saying is um, if we play with statistics a little bit, we talk about like 60% of children grow up in a single parent home who are black. But I believe for white Americans, it's about a quarter. Well, overwhelmingly, there's way more white Americans than there are black Americans. So that tells me that there's way more white people who are growing up in, in broken homes than black people. Yet the, the narrative is reversed. And I think what happens is, and I've seen this just anecdotally, when I talk about fatherlessness, majority of the people who reach out to me do not look like me. They say, that was my story. I went through that. They do not look like me. They are majority white Americans who are going through this. And their, their pain and their situation is not being reflected in the greater narrative. And so they're, they're either never encouraged to get help. They're not acknowledged as far as like they're actually experiencing pain. Um, middle America is experiencing pain because family dysfunction exists there too. Um, but the focus is always on us. And it needs to be on all Americans because this is an American problem. We're number one in the world when it comes to children growing up in separate homes. Nearly a quarter of children grow up in separate homes um, in all demographics in America. And that is the greatest problem that we're facing. Yeah, I think I heard the statistic that overall in America, it's like one in uh, four uh, Americans yeah. grow up in a broken home. In South Korea, it's like one in 72 I mean, just right. hearing about the wild disparity as if it's nothing just built into the uh, human race or anything. Um, the year you use in the book is in 1930, 65 years after the abolition of slavery, a time when Jim Crow laws were fully in effect and the KKK was not only running rampant on the streets, but also in public office. 22 percent of the state and federal prison population were black. Seventy eight percent were white. Forty years later, in 1970, post-Jim Crow, it rose to 39% black imprisonment. How do you explain less imprisonment during a time of legalized oppression in half of the country? Does racism put a gun to a black person's hand and have them pull the trigger? This sort of embracing yeah. responsibility, I think, is so vitally important because you could also just use the examples of uh, the, uh, the, the male... Uh, disparate uh, impacts that I mentioned earlier and say men aren't really responsible until uh, systemic uh, sexism against them uh, ends. <laughs> well, when it comes to the three explanations for disparities, because we do see disparities between whites, Asians, Jews, blacks, Hispanics, Americans, the Chinese, the Russians, we have three approaches generally. Critical theory, disparities are the result of discrimination, like Abraham X. Kendi, biological mm -hmm. explanations, God made the races different or uh, the races evolved in different climates. And then there's uh, culturalism by Thomas Sowell and Wilfred Riley saying that different groups have embraced different cultures. Uh, right. What can we learn from the culturalism aspect and how do you change a culture that's broken? Uh, 
All right. So how do you change a culture that's broken? It's much like how you change anything. You have to acknowledge that it's broken. All right. So you have to acknowledge that this is not working. And sometimes, and I say this to my friend all the time, sometimes you have to let it fail. Um, we talk about politics as well, like, because uh, they're a Republican, they're like, the Republican Party's not doing this. And I'm like, sit back and let it fail. <laughs> and so she's kind of come to the conclusion, like, there's nothing I could do. I'm just going to let it fail. So I think it's much the same thing with culture. Sometimes you have to sit back and let it fail because that's when you're able to pick up the pieces and rebuild from it. Because clearly uh, what ends up happening is those people become dissenting voices. Like someone like myself will become a dissenting voice. Um, and the dissenters are never seen as popular figures, right? Because they're telling the majority of the people that they're wrong and, and pointing out their flaws. And people don't like that, especially if you're in group, right? Which racially I am in group. And I'm saying there's flaws here and we could do better in different directions. And most people don't like that. No, and, and this isn't just racially, this is anything. This is anything. Um, th there's a psychological reason for this. The in-group, someone from the in-group who criticizes the in-group, it gets more backlash than someone from the out-group who's criticizing a different group, right? Because they're seen as traitors. You know, it's, it's a much harsher thing. And that's a, real, that's a real dynamic and it's a real thing. So sometimes as, as a dissenter, um, even though I did my part, uh, to try and warn, but at the same time, sometimes you have to let it fail. Um, and when it fails, then that's when you, you can have people resurrect from it. They can build from it and say, okay, this isn't working as a culture and we need to do something different. Um, and then that's when, um, and I'm, I'm sure we've seen this all different types of times, that's when people who are writers, people who are thinkers, who no one cared about their work <laughs> when they wrote it, all of a sudden, 20 years later, 30 years later, you know, half a century later, someone's like, there's this amazing book I just picked up and it had everything in it. And it's like, oh, my God, this person was a prophet. And then that's when the message can be utilized. So I'm not trying to be grandiose about my book or anything like that. I think. I am a common sense person who wrote something very common sense and in a, in a time when it felt like no one was speaking common sense. And, and this is something that could be uh, read today, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. And maybe it could be some sort of cult classic where someone was like, oh my God, someone was speaking common sense in a time when everybody was acting nutty as shit. <laughs> Right. So I, I'm not trying to project myself as being the smartest person in the world. I'm just using common sense when everybody's afraid to speak common sense. And and I think that is something that could be just enough where someone's like, you know what? Um, I need to think differently. Like there's there's actually someone and, it, and it's very weird to just so you understand my perspective. When I wrote my book, I didn't know what would happen. Like, I just, I just wanted to write a book. I didn't know if 10 people were going to buy it. 100,000 people. I have no idea. But I just wanted to do something to express myself and hopefully help somebody in the process. Uh, there's, there's someone uh, from Minnesota. Uh, he's a black male who got my book and reached out to me and said, your book changed my life. He said that multiple times. Your book changed my life. And 
it's like if I didn't do something, if I just sat in my desk and just looked at the news and I just didn't do something, I wouldn't have been able to help somebody. And subsequently, I've been able to help other people um, and make connections with people and try to help them. So I think that I don't we're kind of veering from the original question, like, how do you change culture? I think you change culture by doing something right. There are going to be points of failure and sometimes you got to let it fail. But I think people should still do something. And and the more people do something about it, um, then the more the more likely you're not that much of a dissenting view. Because um, I, I really do believe like the, the term silent majority, I think, is a real, real thing. Most people are unwilling to say the thing, even if it's an obvious thing. They're unwilling to say the thing because they're not willing to stick their neck out. Right. Um, and that's fine. Not everybody's supposed to. But the more people that stick their neck out, the less you look like a dissenting view. And I think that even if we just have... If there's 10 more Adam Coleman's, 10 more of this, 10 more of that, that makes it look like, hold on a second, there, there's something going on here, and maybe we need to start having a cultural shift. Let one of us get a, a major platform where we start shifting a narrative, and that, that changes things slowly. Then, it, Like how you mentioned Kevin Samuels. Kevin Samuels passed away. I was just having a conversation with my in-laws, and they brought up Kevin Samuels. And we never talked directly with each other about Kevin Samuels, but they came across it because he had an impact on the culture, right? And so I think it's something like that. If he didn't do what he did, he wouldn't have had an impact. And he had a dissenting view and he received lots of backlash. But now, and especially in his death, it's kind of like, man, now he's gone, but he left a lot of information, you know? And, and I think that is something that is, that's, it's hard to do, but I think more people need to do it. Yeah, and the reason I think uh, this book is so important is when I was looking for actual things you can do to change the culture, I came across a number of things. Page 15, you mentioned the idea of contagious behavior. So when you see someone like Kevin Samuels dressing in a suit, listening to people calmly, and then responding, having read a lot of books, you want to sort of copy something uh, mm -hmm. like that. Page 36, you mentioned that shame is societal's border, so don't be afraid to shame behaviors that can really have a big influence on what people do. You mentioned trendsetters, so this sort of iron law of oligarchy. Anytime there are some people really dedicated to doing things, uh, other people are more likely to copy them. You talk about uh, bridging group identities on page 72, which is great as far as uh, creating a culture for people to believe in. Uh, you refer to copying behavioral traits and most importantly, leading by example. I think uh, mm -hmm. those are uh, so, so productive. And you can actually be, uh, you know, more or less white-pilled about uh, so much of this because if racism was the huge issue, we would not see a 30% difference between um, black immigrant incomes and native uh, black incomes on average. If right. just the racism worldview does not explain that, I get that there's a selection process with immigrants, but if it's just about racism, how are they getting more money? What, what box are they checking, if anything, because they have an accent and they're foreign, they'd be more discriminated against. So the book is excellent, Black Victim to Black Victor. Uh, one, uh, one final um, 
I wanted to ask you about calling LeBron James <laughs> Black Batman. That was hilarious. You got to read the book to find out uh, w- why it is dangerous to yell fire in a crowded theater, so to speak, on a larger scale. Final question. Talk to me about the importance of shame. You call it societal's border control. When we shame nothing, we accept everything. Give me some current practices in American society in general that should be shamed and why. You know, it's interesting because I was just talking with someone um, about divorce. And I hear people say like, oh, the state shouldn't be involved in divorce. Okay. But here's the problem. The problem is that we don't have social shame about divorce. Years ago we did. And then you can make that argument that the government doesn't need to be involved in divorce because there are repercussions socially for getting divorced, right? You are seen as someone who discarded your family because you had disagreements. No, you need to get back in there, be a man, be a woman and take care of your household. We don't have that anymore. Now we have celebrations. Now we have parties for recent divorcees. I'm free. Woo. We don't have that anymore. So that is where the state comes in. And as much as I'm not a huge fan of the government, the state comes in and puts repercussions on people for getting divorced, right? It takes assets away from people who get divorced. Now, it has a lien uh, between the man and the female, but it is it is something that's involved, but it's unfortunately not a good solution for something like this. I would prefer a social shame. Like we used to talk about teenage pregnancy. Teenage pregnancy was highly looked down upon, which is why I, you, I don't know if you've ever heard stories of people from like the 60s where all of a sudden the girl just disappears. Oh, where'd she go? And they make up some story and they send her to some like uh, <laughs> some remote place where no one knows her to give birth to some child. And all of a sudden uh, their aunt has a, a new child that they're raising. <laughs> right. And, and it was the reason they would do something like that. It sounds extreme, but the reason they would do something like that, because there was a social shame about having your teenage daughter give birth to a child and and people reacted to that social shame now not so much now it's like i'm a teen you know i'm a teen mom trying to do the best i can and the grandmother's there just taking care of the kid and people just act like well you know it's unfortunate but that's what life is and there is no shame about these particular things these are incredibly unhealthy uh situations to bring people in um you know and I just think that having more shame introduced into the culture, into society, actually benefits society. Now, could we have too much shame? Could we? Yeah, you can always go too far in certain things. But I think there, there are things where it is objectively bad to do. Um, and that's part of the, the leftist progressive ideology is to dismantle shame, is to dismantle um normatives, <laughs> right? Things that we consider normal and just expand your mind so that everything can be normal. It's like, no, that's not how things work in any society. There are always things that, that are seen as shameful, uh, things that are against the culture. Like for example, in Japan, when you're on a train, you're not supposed to be on your phone. You're not supposed to talk loudly. This is a place to be quiet. Where other countries in the United States, unless you're in a quiet car, you can speak on your phone. Now, some people may not like it, you know, some people more sensitive than others, but there is no shame to stop that person from hanging up the phone, right? Whereas in Japan, 
you will get side-eyed, you will get looked at, you might even get talked to for doing something like that because that is how strongly they would shame that type of behavior. And, and it, there are all different types of things that exist in our society that are like that. We have shameful boundaries in our society and some of it is different than other countries, but there is some, much of, much of how we talk about family, I don't think we shame the behavior like we should um, I think that is why we don't care to have our family be involved in our mate selection, right? Because if we choose badly, then we just chose badly. Matter of fact, I didn't choose badly. That person is just a bad person. It's not my fault anyways. Like we don't, we don't shame any of this behavior uh, because whatever outcome happens, it just happens. That's life, right? Like you talk to people who have uh, two, three kids out of wedlock and they're just like, oh, you know, that's, I was young and it just happened. And it's like, no, that's, that's, that's not good behavior. That's, that is shameful. It doesn't mean that we should throw rocks at you and kill you. It just means that you don't get a platform to talk about how, oh, it just, that's just what it was. I was young. I was being stupid. No, you become the person that we don't want everybody else to be. Like you, you can become the point of ridicule, right? And that is actually something that we need more of. So, you know, life happens, yes. Divorce happens, yes. But the way we're very flippant about it, the way we don't install any shame whatsoever, we don't challenge either sex, like especially women. We, we're not allowed to say like, what could you have done better in this relationship? Nothing. He was a bad person. Just absolutely nothing. How, even down to picking this person, you saw no red flags whatsoever in hindsight. You know, it, it's stuff like this. We can't shame people because they can't be accountable. That's what, ultimately what it comes down to. Um, and people avoid shame because they avoid accountability. I can hear Kevin Samuels right now. This woman <laughs> calls in and she goes, I, you know, well, we had three kids and he was horrible. And well, you know what? He, he's in jail now. So he's not paying, you know, child support. Well, because he was so abusive. And he looks at her and says, 20 million black gentlemen in America and you pick Ike Turner. Bye. <laughs> and then hangs up. Actually, my favorite is when it's like, I had three kids with this terrible person. And then he asks, after which kid did you realize he was a terrible person? <laughs> and I think that's a fair question because either she's lying and is just upset because of the outcome or she's idiotic and created another life with a terrible human being. Hence, she has terrible choices in her life. So... I mean, I think that is a fair question to ask someone. Why are you procreating with a terrible human being? Either you're lying or you're just a terrible picker for, for mate selection. Um, and these are, that is a fair question to ask anybody. Take mate selection out of it. If you say, I invested in, in three companies and they all failed. And they were like, well, you're a terrible investor. <laughs> Not that there are, these are three terrible companies. No, no, no. The blame is on you. Because apparently you pick companies horribly and you you lose your money every time. Uh, so, yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, that, that was another uh, responsibility one. He had a guy call in and he's like, well, I can't find a woman. It's no good women out there. This is all horrible. And he said, and his first question, he's just all about the business. He goes, how much do you weigh? And the guy goes, um, like right now. And he just goes, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that that was so important is because it's such a display of, can we just not lie? 
and say that guys in good shape are more likely to attract women and appear to be high status than guys who are extremely obese. Can we not live that lie uh, any longer? Guys with more wealth are going to attract more women. Girls who are in very good shape are more likely to attract other guys. He was mm -hmm. all about getting to uh, the point and being extremely productive in these conversations while holding people accountable. So uh, it was uh, him mostly who uh, came to mind when you were talking about uh, things like leading by example and how to create a, uh, a culture like this. Where is the best place to find the book? Black Victim to Black Victor. Uh, they can find it on Amazon. I think most people buy it off of Amazon. Uh, if you don't want to give money directly to Amazon, you can go to wrongspeak.net. You can purchase a copy there um, and ship it out to you. So, yeah. Mr. Coleman, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure.